This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. Our guest today is Thomas W. Lipman in Washington, D.C. He's the author of a number of books, uh, the latest which of which is a new biography called Get the Damn Story, Homer Bigart and the Great Age of American Newspapers. It's published by the Georgetown University Press. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Homer Bigard, you know, I'm, I'm a student of journalism history myself. I know the name. I know something of him. I know that he's uh, associated in many ways with, with war reporting uh, and that he had a, a long and distinguished career. Uh, he worked uh, first for the New York Herald Tribune, later for the New York Times, uh, in, in a time, sp- uh, time period spanning roughly about 1930 to the early 1970s, uh, was regarded by his colleagues, certainly, as one of the foremost of the uh, the great American newspaper reporters. But today is n- certainly not as well known as some of his colleagues, particularly the people he got to know during World War II, people like uh, Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. Uh, and... Uh, for that reason, I, I think your your new book fills, as many many of the uh, the, the folks giving you blurbs have attested, your book fills a, a gap in the history and the literature of the history of journalism. So I, I wonder if you could tell me how you came to write this, and uh, what drew you to the the subject of Homer Bigart and uh, the, what you call the Great Age of American Newspapers. Well, first of all. I knew Bigger briefly. I was a lowly news assistant at the New York Times when he was one of the grand old men in the newsroom. And I say I knew him. He didn't know me from Adam. The Times' newsroom was a block long and had 1,200 people in it. But those of us who were aspiring to become reporters knew exactly who he was. In a way, he was the person we wanted to grow up to be. And I've always admired him, partly for his accomplishments, but also partly for the fact that he was had no interest in self-promotion. Uh, he never went into television. He didn't write any memoirs. He didn't get into uh, the new journalism and writing for Esquire or The New Yorker. And when he left the business, he left. He went away. And so his record, his work, stands behind him, but in a fairly narrow context, because you won't, if you go to the New York, if you go to the library and look him up, you won't find much. Unlike, let's say, David Halberstam, who succeeded him as the Times' correspondent in Vietnam and became a sort of one-man book industry. Um, 
I was interested in Bigger. I didn't write anything about him for many, many years because all the books I wrote were about the Middle East and Islam, which is what I did for professionally and for a living for many, many years, both at the Washington Post and afterwards. Uh, after my um, most recent book about the Middle East, which came out in 2019, I didn't have anything more to say about the Middle East. And um, I, in fact, I'm now out of there, you might say. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I drove up to a university in Baltimore and gave away my library. Um, but I had been gathering string on Biggert for years in the anticipation that someday somebody, maybe me, would write a book about him. And so that was my opportunity. And once I started, I found that a lot of people um, were more than happy to help me with that project. Bigart was, uh, you, you know, reading your book and and reading a little of his stuff online. I also looked up looked up a little of his his copy, especially in the New York Times, which is now, uh, you know, ser fully searchable online. And there's almost there's something almost disarmingly straightforward about Homer Bigart's story. Uh, he came from rural Pennsylvania, up in the Pocono Mountains, fairly simple background. He was, uh, by his own admission, uh, an indifferent student. Uh, he went to college, obviously a smart guy, went to a, a Carnegie Mellon, later took some courses at NYU, uh, never got a degree, initially thought he was going to be an architect, but I, I love this line. I, I dropped out of it after he found that it required him to draw, and he wasn't very good at that, and sort of got into journalism. Can we almost say by accident? A friend told him, hey, we've got some openings here for what were then known as copy boys at the New York Herald Tribune. And so Bigger went to New York. And uh, one thing that struck me was that he spent five years as a copy boy at the Herald Tribune, in part because his uh, would-be supervisor there had some class prejudices about, you know, boys from rural Pennsylvania who had not graduated from college. Uh, as you put it, Bigart had no burning message. Uh, he came across to some people as maybe at first they made the mistake of thinking he was dull or not so bright because he had a stammer. He asked an awful lot of questions. He had, uh, you know, what some people called the dummy routine. And uh, so I, I think in a way the title of your book is extremely Apt. I don't know if you came up with that or the publisher did. Sometimes it's one or the other, but it's get the damn story. And that is his modus operandi. Is that right? Well, let me back up just a minute and say this. Uh, I, I would say that there were people in the newspaper business during my whole 40 years in the business who were like me, who really never wanted to do anything else. I, I was a kid. I mean, once I realized I was never going to hit major league pitching, and that came pretty early. Um, I was a kid. You remember bubblegum trading cards? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, there were, when I was about 10 years old, I lived in San Francisco at the time, there was a company that put out bubblegum trading cards that actually were about newspapering. On one side, there'd be a picture of some famous event like the Hindenburg disaster, let's say, or Pearl Harbor. And on the other side, there would be a depiction of how that event looked on the front page of an American newspaper when it was reported at the time. 
so that by the time before I was 11 years old, I knew about the Youngstown Vindicator and the Memphis Commercial Appeal and the Portland Oregonian. And I knew what they looked like and their typefaces. I was fascinated by it. So, of course, I worked on my high school paper and I worked on my college paper to the detriment of my grades. Uh, And the day, well, the night after I graduated from college, I went to work as a night shift copy boy at the New York Times. And in those days, the Times had a system. It was, it was really like being admitted to an apprenticeship when you get on the night shift. The night shift was run by a diminutive four foot 10 inch martinet named Sammy Solowitz. And we called it the Solowitz School of Journalism. And your job was to learn everything about the newspaper while you hustled opportunities to write and work your way up to become a reporter. And so that worked for me. But I think a lot of people get into newspapering by accident. They have no aptitude for the sciences a lot of times, or they don't really know what they want to do. And newspapering doesn't require any credentials. There's no newspaper equivalent of the bar exam. And once you get into it, it's the most fun you can have and still be legal, in my opinion. And so a lot of my colleagues really were there almost by accident. For Biggert, he, having dropped out of Carnegie Mellon, he didn't know what he wanted to do. He knew what he didn't want to do, which was go back home to Hawley, Pennsylvania, population 1200, and work for his father. And as the book says, he had a friend who was a copy boy at the New York Herald Tribune and got a, a bigger into that roster. As they say, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. He didn't leave the newspaper business until he retired 40-some years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to to sum up Homer Biggert, you know, if I can can sum it up and and you can add to it, certainly, he he had a lot of the the typical reporters' inclinations. Although you write, he was not quote unquote unnatural, at least from the beginning. Although maybe few of us are, um, he had a very low threshold of indignation. He did not like being lied to, especially by his own government. That you know got his dander up. He uh, he had a stutter, which got worse when he was uh, in a foxhole and people were shooting at him. Uh, this made him, you know, obviously not. And uh, he was not a man for the lecture circuit or television. He was not urbane and polished like an like an Edward R. Murrow. Uh, he uh, he didn't like bureaucracy. Um, he didn't like being edited. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, just to, as, a, as by, by way of background, I'm one of those quote unquote pallid clerks who worked as an editor, uh, bigger, didn't like them and he didn't read his own stuff in print because he didn't want to see what had been done to it. And, uh, having worked as a reporter myself, I can understand that. So he, uh, he, uh, favored, generally favored, uh, the underdog, the marginalized, the dispossessed, uh, but he, he had to come to all these qualities, over time, and I guess it, it it was was really in World War II where he first proved himself. He had been a a, a clerk, uh, or not a clerk, a, a, a copy boy for a while, doing some random writing assignments around New York for the New York Herald Tribune, which was known as a writer's newspaper. Uh, it was one of the quote unquote 
serious newspapers of the new of New York City, as opposed to, let's say, uh, the New York Daily News or the New York Post. Well, the New York Post, I guess, was serious at one time. And uh, so it was a writer's newspaper. And it was described by many people as a as a fun place to work. But it was when Big Art went overseas in uh, World War Two, uh, started out the first harrowing example you give of his re- war reporting was a, a daytime raid in a bomber over Germany. Uh, I think it was a ship building works. Um, absolutely harrowing. Uh, Cronkite, among the among the others of among the the journalists up there, uh, one of the journalists was killed in, in that expedition. And there, Bigart sort of found his calling and found what he was especially good at. And I must say, reading some of those dispatches from the Herald Tribune, I'm thinking, wow! Uh, if I had been around during those times, I would have been very much. Uh, a reader of his. What was it about the war that brought out Bigout's greatness and won him his his first Pulitzer Prize, World War II? Well, he, he, again, he was lucky. Partly this whole story was another happy accident. He was just old enough that he didn't get drafted into World War II. He was theoretically available, uh, eligible for the draft, but they never really took men his age. I know that from my own father. And so, and he was limited by his stutter. You know, what reporters do is they pick up the phone and call people. And to a certain extent, they interrogate them over the phone. He really could not do that with any fluency at all. And so his opportunities to show what he could do were limited. And then a couple of things happened. A man named Engelking, E-N-G-E-L-K-I-N-G, became city editor of the Herald Tribune and applied himself to teaching Homer Bigger how to do the job and how to write, how to shape his stories in such a way that they were interesting. And then came the war. And the Herald Tribune, like many, many other American institutions, was suddenly short of manpower. It's an unhappy fact of life that wars are great opportunities for young reporters. We saw this in World War II with Bigger and his generation. We certainly saw it in Vietnam with the young people like uh, David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan, um, uh, who found opportunities in Vietnam that wouldn't have existed without that war. Uh, we saw it again really more recently in Iraq, where young people got the opportunity. So he went over to London because they needed somebody to go to London, basically. He was a reporter by then, um, but he had no knowledge of or experience at war. And who did, right? Uh, And he threw himself into it, partly because he enjoyed living in London, partly because he had outstanding contemporaries and colleagues, such as Walter Cronkite and uh, Andy Rooney, Um, and partly because it turned out he was surprisingly good at it. You can't teach that. You can guide, you can edit, you can suggest that that bit down in the sixth paragraph should actually be the lead of the story. 
but you can't teach how to look at a situation or an event or a development or a person and make it into a interesting package of 800 words, let's say, that will command the reader's attention. And he did it really uh, because the events came his way. He was an extremely hard, relentless worker. Because the war was taking place in Europe, he had many hours every day before his deadline. If his deadline was 6 p.m. New York time, that was midnight or 11 p.m. European time. He had hours to polish and perfect and reorganize and retype his stories. He was a two-finger typist, like many reporters in those days. And his copy was kind of messy to look at when, when you saw it in person. Um, but he had he was relentless and dogged in his determination to polish, to get the exact detail, to get whatever it was, the name of the dog, the color of the socks, the uh, amount of salt in the food that he was describing about so that readers could really connect with it. He didn't just go to briefings and write about what was said there. He hated doing that. And he was, uh, I guess you could say in his way, he was a stylist, maybe not remembered as a stylist, but this is a something he developed. And, and I think the, the New York Herald Tribune and the war combined were a, a, a perfect blend of environments that allowed him to develop this. He, he had his, as you mentioned, he was a very slow extraordinarily deliberate writer. He was always the last person on the scene to make sure every name was spelled right. He had uh, a very telling eye, eye for detail. You mentioned that uh, the, uh, uh, the his uh, very brief account of the Japanese surrender aboard the USS Missouri, where the, uh, the admiral puts a, a cane up against the, uh, uh, up against the table. And at a certain point, the cane falls down. And he included that in this in this eight paragraph story as a sort of a kind of a symbolic thing, but not in any sort of pretentious or silly way, but in a very telling way. And uh, he also, as he gained confidence from the Herald Tribune, was was encouraged and allowed to write in the first person. Uh, he referred to U.S. forces as we, uh, and then. There was strategy in there, stuff from the battlefield, usually from the front lines. And then also, of course, the personal accounts of the soldiers. He was not a, a, an Ernie Pyle by any means, but he did some of that Ernie Pyle style stuff. So-and-so, you know, from Omaha, Nebraska, the colonel, and did this and that. And and so can you describe what made him great, particularly in, in war? Well, first, I, I have... In retrospect, all these years later, I have a few criticisms about what the Herald Tribune let him and other reporters get away mm -hmm. with. It's one thing to write in the first person. If you've been pinned down in a foxhole with three GIs overnight and two of them are killed and you barely escape, it's one thing to write that story in the first person. It's another to refer to the U.S. troops as we. He was not one of them. And in fact, there was a story many years later in which Henry Kissinger, this is not about bigger, but Henry Kissinger on one of his trips in the Middle East 
said to the members of the press corps in the back of the plane, I know you're all rooting for me to succeed. And Richard Valeriani of NBC said, no, we're not, Mr. Secretary. Failure is as good a story as success. <laughs> Kissinger couldn't believe it. Well, I think Bigger did cross the line a little bit in writing about we, although he was frequently critical of us, we. Um, but he had a way, he remembered the first principle of learning about any story in which there is action, go there, go to the top of that mountain, go into the monastery, go into the place that got bombed, go there and write down what you saw. In the war like that, the events carried the story. You had world-shaking mass-scale events, some of them involving weaponry previously unseen, in places in Europe that resonated with a lot of Americans, where a lot of Americans were of Italian or Polish or German ancestry. And the combination, as he began to find his way, he began to polish his style and get very good at it. And he had a sense of how far he could go. And um, he was just, it turned out to be a natural. You you recount uh, his his work in, in in World War II. Once the United States got involved in the war, he initially uh, covered the the, uh, the the war from the the point of view of the British and the Americans in London, and then was with the troops in North Africa, and then went up through. I, I think they call it the soft underbelly of Europe when the troops went up through Italy, and that's where he really came into his own, some of these accounts of what happened in Italy. And you recount that work as, as the, uh, it was a strange time too, because a lot of the Italians, of course, were no longer great fan, fans of Mussolini. And some of them sort of stood aside while the Americans plowed up there. Others did not. And of course, the, the Germans were there as well. Uh, so it was a very dangerous environment and, and a long, bloody slog. But you wrote that that Bigger uh, at the time came into his own, not just as a war correspondent, but as a foreign correspondent. And what what do you mean by that? Well, the two, the two jobs are not the same. They often overlap, but they're not the same. A war correspondent's job is to write about the war and the people who participate in it. A foreign correspondent's job is to penetrate the culture and the society of countries not his or her own, and to try to explain them to readers back home. Uh, and Bigert got to be good at that with stories that came about because of the war, but were not about the war. He did a hilarious story about female German soldiers looting the underwear stores in a, in a French village, for example, right? I mean, that's the story, the kind of story that Ben Bradley used to say had nothing but readers. <laughs> um, he wrote about the food they ate. And I, I must say, by the way, that his commentary, as was common, as was quite common at the time, often had what you might call sexist overtones. I mean, that the mayor's buxom daughter in the bright yellow sweater. I mean, mm -hmm. really, you would never write that now. But people ate it up because they, it, unlike the war in, in Asia, which most Americans, certainly most New Yorkers knew nothing about, the war in Europe, they could see 
that this was 10 miles from their grandfather's village. Mm -hmm. And they knew about that food, that music, those paintings that got looted from that museum in Naples. The, the fight over the first fresh bread in weeks at a bakery in Italy, right? Americans describing those things was, he didn't have to make anything up. There was no blood in those, in those stories, but people loved them and he got to be quite good at it. Those were more what I would call foreign correspondenting stories about weird places and strange foods than they were about combat. And you used to talk about but crossing the line. I don't know if this was considered crossing the line at the time, but the and I know other newspapers did this as well. Uh, the Herald Tribune was not shy about promoting Bigart as a, a personality, even though you know, I'm not sure what he thought about this. But things you know, when Homer Bigart goes, you know he will get the story, and our own Homer Bigart is at the front lines, and you know, watch for his dispatches in the Herald Tribune. So they made a sort of a, a journalistic celebrity over him, uh, of him, and would uh, uh, they gave him free reign. You know, from, from my own career, I think it's, it, he was almost like a sports writer. A, a very good sports writer gets a lot of rain and a lot of promotion because you know they draw readers and you give them a, a lot of room to do that. Was that, I think, was unusual at the time? Do you think it was proper? Well, look. First of all, there's a line between having a lot of room to run with the story and purple prose, okay? Biggert mostly didn't write purple prose. He didn't get carried away. His accounts were pretty straightforward. Um, but it was a very tough call for every newspaper. After two years of this, Biggert had seen more combat more combat than most of the troops and officers he was writing about. And the Tribune began to give him room to write critical analyses of what the military had decided to do and how they had conducted a particular campaign because he'd been there. He'd seen it. He saw things you didn't learn at West Point or Annapolis. Uh, and so it, it was... And, and the Herald Tribune... In the, atmosphere, in the New York atmosphere of the 1940s, yes, the Herald Tribune was, completing with, was competing with the Gray Lady, the New York Times, but it was also competing with the uh, Daily News, the Daily Mirror, and the Journal American, you know, which had pinup girls. And, uh, and the contest for readers in the subway, you had to give most of, a lot of the readers more than just dry detail about the war or quote, unexamined quotations. Bigert uh, risked his life on so many occasions. And I, I do, uh, as with any of these people, uh, uh, you come away with, it, particularly those who return repeatedly to war, you come away sometimes with an amazement over those who live to a ripe old age and die in their sleep. <laughs> and Pickard was one of those. Um, you mentioned uh, that that particularly harrowing story. This is from Korea. He's it, it huddled up uh, in, in the cold in a foxhole with two other, uh, with two servicemen. Uh, he gets up at dawn. 
to look around a little bit. By this time, he's hearing chattering in Chinese because the Chinese have gotten involved in the war. He goes back to the foxhole and finds the two soldiers dead from a mortar blast. And there is a lot of this. Um, through this, uh, uh, World War II, Korea, later uh, some in Vietnam as well. And uh, we don't necessarily go get the impression that Bigart was addicted to war or adrenaline or was a, a war junkie. You do hear, you read of some war correspondents who, when a war ends, they go immediately and find another war to cover <laughs> wherever it might be or an insurrection. And this is their life. This was not necessarily Bigger's life. As we know later on, especially when he went to the New York Times, he covered a lot of domestic stuff as well and big stories. So, uh, he was not an adrenaline junkie. Um, did he just go to the front lines because that's where the story was? Yes. In general, in any war that lasts more than a couple of weeks, it, there's a kind of de facto division that comes into the press corps, the people assigning it. There are reporters who spend the day going to briefings and having conversations and reading what's coming in on the AP and Reuters wires and putting together a sort of big picture story about what the developments of the day were and so on, right? And what Colonel so-and-so said about it. And then there are reporters who don't do that. There are reporters who, if there's shooting going on, go to where the shooting is. You know, it's a distinction somebody made to me in, in Beirut one time during the Civil War there when I was there. Uh, do you want bang-bang or substance? Well, it wasn't that Bigert wanted bang-bang per se, but he thought that he could learn more about what the GIs were up to, how the American tactics were playing out on the ground when, when things actually happened as opposed to on the chalkboard by being there. And that was his job, so he went there. Just as later on, when he was covering some of the most dramatic events of the civil rights movements in the movement in the United States, he didn't do it from Manhattan. He did it from Neshoba County, Mississippi, or Little Rock. And later on in in Korea, Korea's something of a different animal. Uh, uh, I should mention uh, certainly that, uh, as you note. Uh, Bigart uh, was 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 on the ground, or actually in the air, when World War II ended. He was on a last, uh, just completing a last bombing run when he got news of the surrender. And only a few days later, of course, was, was aboard the USS Missouri, and also was on the ground seeing the effects of the war in Hiroshima, uh, the effects of the atomic bomb. And of course, back then, m- most people don't really, most people didn't really know about radiation poisoning. They didn't know the effects of radiation. There'd been very little study of it. And Bigard, of course, one of the first things he noticed was that he expected to see lots of rubble and wreckage all over the place, like Berlin. And of course, there was none. Everything, at least toward ground zero, had been blown to smithereens. It was gone. And incinerated. Yes. And he reported on some did some early reports on the, these effects of uh, radiation poisoning. Uh, John Hersey, of course, is is the man who broke the story wide open with his 
his New Yorker reporting later. That was a year later. Yep, a year later. A year later. So Bigert at least started the debate in Washington over what are the effects of the bomb, what is the morality of using the bomb. So there he's he's opening a post-war chapter in a in a very important way. Well, absolutely. And I don't think he intended to do that. I think before he went before the bomb was dropped, he didn't know any more about radiation than anybody else did. And I don't think he had any idea that people would be dying from the effects of the bomb weeks, months, maybe even years after the bomb went off. Because all the bombs seen before that went off on impact and they obliterated the village or the bunker or the military headquarters or the trucks or the convoy, whatever it was, that they landed on. The atomic bomb went off in the air and unleashed fire and radiation that killed people then in the fire and for weeks and a long long time afterward. It was an entirely different kind of weapon with, with which he had no more experience than anybody else did. But once he got to Hiroshima, he looked out the window of whatever car he was riding in and he could see what had happened. And so he described it. As I said in my my introduction to the book, and as you mentioned today, he had no political agenda. He wasn't some kind of peacenik trying to ban nuclear weapons. He was a guy whose job it was to tell the readers what the heck had happened there. Who did what to whom? And that's what he did. We get to Korea, and uh, it's something something of a different game. You write uh, very succinctly. I, I had to chuckle at this because I thought, yeah, that's, that's pretty much right on. Truman was not crazy about the war in Korea because it was a country far away. We didn't have an immediate interest in Korea. Uh, you know, there was a Cold War narrative involved, obviously, and uh, most people knew very little about Korea. It didn't resonate with people in, you know, the Bronx or Queens or anything, uh, most of them at least. And this was a, an arena where, where Berger would, would use his, the same tactics of reporting, going where the action was, talking to people, getting the damn story, as we say, and... But this this saw him clashing with uh, higher ups, and he was he was older. He was more confident. Uh, he he had honed his skills, and many times he would uh, critique U.S. strategy uh, in a way that a. Uh, uh, I, th- I think back to Howard Cosell in sports and how he would, you know, how he would gripe that, oh, the Cowboys had messed up their defense. How could they do this? This was so terrible and was was certainly willing to to call out the for the troops whom he still called we in Korea, but uh, willing to anger people all the way up to General MacArthur uh, although many, many officers later defended him, said he had said uh, Bigart had done very good work. Uh, was this, he certainly wasn't an adversary journalist, but his critical thinking skills were sharpened by his they career were. experience. And I think to use another sports analogy, he called him like he saw him. And if 
General MacArthur made a decision to split the U.S. force into two columns, one on the west, one on the left, and one on the right, going north toward the Yalu, and that opened this vast gap for the Chinese troops to exploit as they came down and drove the Americans into retreat. What was he supposed to say? You know, I mean, he wasn't critical of the individual troops or of their units on the ground, but he could see that as a matter of tactics, it had been a, there had been a spectacular failure. And so he said so. I don't believe he did it with the intent of trying to get rid of Colonel X or General Y. I, I don't think that's what he was about. He was about seeing what he could see and putting it in a coherent narrative and informing the readers and moving on to the next one. I think uh, if we say uh, uh, maybe the most unfortunate chapter of Bigger's career was his treatment of his colleague Marguerite Higgins in Korea. And I, I wonder, this was it, sexism was a thing at the time, and Marguerite Higgins was an extraordinary human being. She obviously was was well she 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 backs up my statement that it's very hard to be truly great at anything if you are a straight ahead normal kind of run of the mill person she was extraordinarily ambitious and she didn't give a damn what anybody thought of her uh, including homer bigger and they never got along and you think this was was a, a more of a matter of, of simple ambition or was it sexism of a, a blend of both well, first, I would say that we could argue about what was the most unfortunate chapter of his career. Was it his treatment of Maggie Higgins or was it his reporting from sub-Saharan Africa, which we can get to that later. But yes. in the Higgins case, after my daughter read this book, she sent me a note and said, Dad, I want the book about Higgins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maggie mm-hmm. Higgins um, was, it, it's hard to describe Higgins in ways that are acceptable discourse today. Mm-hmm. Okay. She was young and attractive. She was multilingual. She spoke, she was fiercely ambitious. And perhaps inevitably, she acquired a reputation for getting things from male sources in ways that were not available to her male counterparts. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. As you mentioned, there was even a kind of a, a pulp novel yes. written about her that was sort of a very thinly disguised tale about her. Called Shriek with Pleasure. <laughs> yes. And it was about a young blonde reporter who had been sent at a very young age to Europe by her newspaper. It couldn't have been anybody else. Right. And that didn't help Maggie Higgins in her relationship with the other troops in Korea. But remember what happened. After, after World War II, Maggie Higgins, still young, had done a good job, and the Herald Tribune assigned her to Tokyo as its regional correspondent. She went to Tokyo. And so when war broke out in Korea, which was part of her area of responsibility, she went there and started reporting about the war. Without telling her, the big shots back in New York decided that they needed their own big shot there. And so they sent Biggert. And he went, because that's where he was assigned to go. 
And there's nothing a young foreign correspondent or war correspondent hates more than the arrival of Bigfoot, right? Somebody who comes in there and gets the glamour bylines and, and you become, an, in effect, a spear carrier. She was not going to do that. Bigger came in and announced that he was in charge. He ordered her to leave. She refused. She found an ally in Kai's Beach of the Chicago Daily News who had his own Jeep. And so she went to the war with Kai's Beach, leading to a situation in which Bigger refused to talk to her. So they sometimes showed up at the same combat engagement. That's not a good use of your assets, of your resources. They should have complemented with an E each other, but they didn't. They both wound up writing great copy in spite of what was going on. Uh, and, and in fact, both of them won Pulitzers for their coverage in Korea. But only later did Biggert acknowledge that his treatment of her had been, uh, shall we say, less than chivalrous. Mm-hmm. And Higgins, to her credit, never demanded or wanted or accepted special treatment because she was a woman in terms of the conditions that she lived in. She used the same latrines that everybody else did and got down in the same mud and went ashore in the same landing craft as everybody else. The army ordered her to leave after a while because some pig-headed general didn't think women should be in the combat zone. And she appealed to MacArthur himself, who ordered her to go back and reinstated her credentials. It mattered what the army thought because the army controlled the lines of communication. You needed to use the army's telegraph or wires to send your copy back home. So you couldn't just be totally independent of what the army wanted. Um, And meanwhile, they were both... um, Kai's Beach was caught in the middle. He was Biggert's colleague. He was he didn't particularly like Higgins, but he was her colleague, and he respected their work. And he became a kind of um, sort of a broker. You know, he persuaded Biggert to talk to her one day. <laughs> Can you imagine? It really was quite petty. And what would have happened had they cooperated? I, 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 there's no way to tell. Mm-hmm. They were they were great. They delivered great reporting as it was, maybe because of this, where they were in competitive with each other. 1955. Uh, the Herald Tribune was a great newspaper in its way. Uh, uh, it had been around, of course, since the days of going back to Horace Greeley and uh, been through, of course, a merger in the meantime. Still one of the serious newspapers of New York. But the, the writing was on the wall for a number of years that it was in at least relative decline. Uh, and Bigert finally pulled the plug uh, and left, called up, I believe it was Turner Catledge at... Uh, uh, at the New York Times, and Catlish says, "Well, gee, what Homer? What took you so long?" And he uh, went just a well, what did you, just a couple of blocks. I was I was in the the former Tribune newsroom myself a, a few years ago, not too far away. So he went over across uh, Times Square and uh, went to the Times. Uh, 
Homer Bigert respected the New York Times. It was the gray lady, the great, uh, it had the resources. It had uh, the, certainly the, uh, the staff, uh, the determination, the, the news hole uh, to tell the story had uh, one great respect during World War II by devoting much of its news hole to the war news, even when it could have sold more advertising. And so took a dominant position in that sense. Uh, but Bigart did not love the New York Times the way he loved the Herald Tribune. And he left the, he left the Herald Tribune with a fair amount of regret. And what was the difference between the two? And, and why did Bigart respect the Times, but not necessarily love it? Well, I can give you perhaps contemporary audiences would understand this in terms of a, of a more contemporary figure. When the Washington Star died, Mary McGrory left and came over to the Washington Post. She had friends in the newsroom. She was a successful columnist at the Post, but it wasn't her paper, right? The bar the Post people hung out at was not her bar. The same thing happened at the Times in the sense that the Times was an editor's paper. Every story got massaged by six guys on its way from typewriter to printing press. And all of them felt they had to tinker with it. The Times was grotesquely overstaffed. Days would go mm -hmm. by when reporters didn't have an assignment. And it was, it was quite rigorous in putting constraints on what reporters could say and what, what they could write and what they couldn't write. Um, Baird had gotten accustomed to saying what he thought the situation required him to say. Uh, a lesson he learned really in post-war Poland, where it became impossible to convey the reality of Poland without saying what was really going on, namely that the Soviets had installed a puppet government. And the Times was always trying to find some circumspect way to say this stuff within narrowly defined terms. And Bigger chafed at that. And he, um, he responded in some times with quite testy messages back to the home office from wherever he was. I don't mean he didn't do good work. He did excellent work. He did distinctive work. And the Times eventually lightened up a bit. In, his, in Bigger's famous series on poverty in America, the Times gave him a good bit of running room. But the Times' newsroom was not home, was never his home. I, I'm, I'm recalling now the famous story from some years later of the journalist Molly Ivins from Texas, who went to the New York Times and was, was a Texan. That's, that was where she came from and how she wrote. And it, she wrote a piece for the Times in which she described a, a man as having a beer gut that belonged in the Smithsonian. And the New York Times changed it to a man with a protuberant abdomen. <laughs> well, that was true, wasn't it? <laughs> it was true. Just, just a different way of saying it, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you do write, uh, you do mention uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, well, going well into the 60s, we see the area, the era of decolonialization in Africa. Bigart was sent there 
he, he didn't like it. Uh, he had a sort of an unusual hybrid arrangement with the times. He'd spent six months at home and then some time abroad was sent to hot spots. The last thing he wanted was a posting in a foreign capital where he would be hanging around with the ambassador at the ambassador's residence all day. That was not his style. But uh, he did uh, uh, he did spend some time in Africa, particularly the uh, uh, what was then known as the Belgian Congo. So as you mentioned, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, it was a difficult era in that Africa was decolonializing uh, the powers, particularly Britain, France, Belgium, uh, who had been active there, were engaged in decolonialization. But to, to many Americans, America, Africa still remained. I remember up until just a few years ago, it was almost permissible to call it this, the dark continent. And we thought of it as mainly a land of, of danger, intrigue, strange customs, uh, primitive people. And Bigart played into a lot of this. And his editors, let's be fair, they kind of ate it up. They and, did, absolutely. And so there was there was some genuine reporting there on, you know, and, and Bigart was a skeptic pretty much from the start, uh, thinking, wow, are we going to be able to turn all of this over or are the Europeans going to be able to turn all this over? And is, you know, democracy as we know it going to be able to flourish in a place where there never has really has been this kind of democracy? But there are also plenty of, uh, you know, bizarre accounts of bizarre practices. The word cannibalism came up quite often. And it was, I mean, as you say, not, not a, uh, uh, not the best chapter of his personal story. Well, that's true. Look, Bigert lived and worked for most of his career in a virtually all-white environment, from Hawley, PA, to the newsroom of the New York Times. And it, it's not like you would turn on the network news and see Lester Holt. No, no. I, and so, or, or Bernard Shaw. The Africa was the dark continent. And I'd say there was a general sense, not only among the colonial people who lived there, but among people in their home countries and the United States, that those colonists had laid a fairly thin veneer of civilization over this continent of savages, of missionary eaters, mm -hmm. you know, and that when the people from France, Britain, uh, Belgium, and Portugal left the continent, the continent would revert to its natural state, which was more or less, uh, it was certainly unsophisticated. The idea that there were people on the continent who in fact were educated and were capable of organizing a government or a society really was uh, considered quite strange. Nobody thought that. And so the result was that the Times editors, after all, Biggert had given them a lot of those wonderful stories about the German women buying underwear, stealing underwear in France. They encouraged him to file stories about cannibals and pygmies and weird dietary habits and stuff, which were self-reinforcing. And I think if you were, if, if you were, going back and assigning bigger today and editing those stories 
you would want some of the color. I don't mind reporting on what they served, what Africans ate. That's fine. But you also needed to report much more about the economic, geographic, agricultural, political reality that was coming up in post-war, in post-colonial Africa, and to examine the question of why, if the Africans were still so unsophisticated and primitive, why was that? After all those years of colonial occupation, right? How come they hadn't been educated, raised up, put in neckties, right? Um, it was a really an unfortunate chapter for the Times and for Bigger. Unfortunately, only lasted six months for him. Mm-hmm. He was uh, Bigger was. I guess any good natural, good reporter is naturally skeptical. Uh, I used to work with a guy who had a bumper sticker on his file cabinet said, skepticism is a virtue, which I do believe in terms of reporting. He was one of maybe a minority of journalists early on who were rather skeptical of the Cuban revolution and Fidel Castro. The Times sent its uh, editorial writer, Herbert Matthews. Herbert Matthews. Yeah, sent him to Cuba and he joined what was a fairly large chorus of people saying, you know, and of course, Batista was not a widely admired or admirable figure at the time. So it was maybe understandable to look at a, a young uh, Mr. Castro and say, you know, he, he is the future, as Matthews more or less did. Uh, but Biggert was was less sure of this. He was less he was a skeptic. And and how did that come about? Well, Matthews had distinguished himself with his reporting in the Spanish Civil War. He spoke Spanish. And by the time of the Cuban Revolution, he was no longer a reporter. He was an editorial writer, which meant that it was his job to give his opinions. He happened to be in Cuba um, in pursuit of his job, really when the Cuban Revolution became a thing. And he traveled, made a difficult trip up into the mountains to interview young Castro, whom the government had reported dead. The Batista government asserted that the leader of the, re- of the rebellion had was dead. Well, Matthews found that he was very much alive and quite voluble, had a lot to say, and was... Uh, was busy running his revolution. Matthews bought it all. I mean, Castro must have been the greatest snow job artist ever. And Matthews basically reported that Fidel Castro was this young hero, this nationalist who was going to shake off dictatorship and liberate the Cubans, right? And the idea that he was a doctrinaire communist was nowhere to be found. Well, the Times editor, the news editors, as opposed to the editorial editors, in fairness to them, they were very uncomfortable with Matthews's adulatory reporting about Castro and his movement, especially because some other newspapers, such as the Chicago Tribune, were reporting something that was much closer to reality. And so Rather than send Matthews back to Cuba the next time they needed somebody down there, they sent Bigger. The Times had a resident correspondent in Cuba, a woman named Ruby Hart Phillips, 
who used the byline R. Hart Phillips, so nobody would know it was a woman. And she was totally a creature of the Batista government. She was well wired with the Batista people, but she was not the person to go to the field and find out what Castro was really up to. So they had a guy who they trusted to do that, and that was Homer Biggert. And Biggert was not anti-Castro. He didn't go there with that intent, and I don't think he emerged anti-Castro. But he had a much better developed sense of what Castro might in fact do should he come to power. And he reported it that way. It was very, very different from Matthews's reporting. Um, and bigger, um, in, in fairness to him, he made the trip. He did the travel. He went into the jungle. He slogged the slog to get a much more realistic picture of what Castro might be and what he might do. Biggert spent six months in Vietnam in 1962. And you look back at that and you think, wow, that was, uh, you know, the, the second year of the Kennedy administration. Uh, technically, we were not at war. We were advising. Uh, so much of what Biggert, as you, as you note uh, in the book, that his, uh, even though he hated Vietnam, uh, you, you give an anecdote of him crossing the days off on the calendar. And it's something you cannot imagine Biggert doing because he was such a natural reporter by this time. But he, he hated the assignment. Um, he delivered some very important work and he influenced some people who came after him, immediately after him, like David Halberstam, uh, Neil Sheehan, who went on to be the one of the Pentagon Papers reporters, uh, a later generation of uh, reporters as the, and if you had told Homer Bigger in 1962, that by 1968, there would be half a million or a quarter million, half a million Americans in Vietnam and 58,000 of them would end up dying. I mean, he would have been utterly incredulous over this, but he was nonetheless somewhat prescient about the, uh, what was happening because this was a guerrilla war. This was something new. And because it was a different environment than the United States had faced before. And uh, so in that sense, his reporting was very important. Is that right? Well, he could, he could see a couple of things. One was the disconnect between the kind of war Americans fought and were teaching the South Vietnamese to fight and the kind of war that was really going on which was, as you say, a guerrilla war, and in which six guys in rubber sandals would hurl satchel charges into the cafe in some town and retreat back into the bush, you know, or fire at helicopters from behind a palm tree and then disappear. They didn't wear, they, they were indistinguishable from the peasants among whom they had grown up. The, United, the Americans did things in a big, clumsy, visible way. Although we weren't at war, and although the Americans weren't in combat, we were building bowling alleys for the troops mm -hmm. and gymnasiums and tennis courts. And we had guys getting killed, a few of them even then. Um, and Biggert soon discovered that 
the embassy, the American embassy, uh, was in effect lying to him about what was really going on and how many people were doing what, and the troop buildup continued. And the embassy was taking its clues from the White House, where Kennedy was not telling the truth about what we were really up to. And so Biggert began to get more and more skeptical. And he was really furious when a when an American was badly wounded in some helicopter transport scene, and the army refused to give him the Purple Heart because we weren't at war. Well, Biggert wrote that story. It took the White House about 36 hours to award that soldier the Purple Heart and because they were embarrassed by Biggert's reporting. And that was just one small early example. More and more, he could see that more and more Americans were doing more and more things that were at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. And so he wrote that. That's what he was there to do. Well, the embassy people didn't like that at all. And remember that at the time, only the New York Times and Newsweek, among American news outlets, had a resident correspondent in Vietnam. And so the embassy simply froze them out. They were much happier giving the grand tour, showing all the good news to visiting hotshots like Joe Alsop than they were letting Biggert go into the combat zone. And it was one thing for Biggert and uh, Francois Sully of Newsweek to rent a car or get a car and drive down into the Mekong Delta where they could see what was going on. But a lot of the action was taking place up north where you couldn't go by road. And the Americans wouldn't take him there. And he got more and more angry about it. And, it, and, and it showed, I think, in certainly in his correspondence with the Home Office and in his correspondence with his friend Betsy Wade. Um, and his stories became more and more negative, inevitably. Not to, uh, not to dismiss the domestic side here. I wanted to, to give you an opportunity to, to point to some of Biggert's best work on the home front in, into the 1960s, into the, the early 1970s, I believe. Um, among other things, he was the guy they sent to all the big trials. He covered a lot of great trials <laughs> of that area, and, and there, there were a lot of them. The one he went abroad for, of course, was Adolf Eichmann, which was fascinating in itself, but a lot, of course, as well on the home front. And other stories, you note know, that he wrote about civil rights and poverty and used the recording skills he had honed abroad to bring these domestic stories to life as well. What, what are some of those that stand out for you? Well, probably the most important um, that he covered was the court-martial of William Calley, who was who took the fall for the My Lai Massacre. But there were others, there were domestic trials, like the trial of the Boston Strangler, you know, that, I, I mean, really... Any competent reporter can cover a trial. Um, Biggert was good at it, but it was hard to distinguish yourself doing that because a trial is a self-contained operation. It all takes place in one room. And you can discuss the higher implications of it, but it's a, it's a readily manageable event that you can cover. We're going to see it in the unlikely event that President Trump goes to trial, you will be able to see the trial and report the proceedings. Um, 
And so the Times used him on a lot of these big stories um, when it didn't really have to. The trial of, let's say, um, one of the Berrigan brothers. Yes. Well, that got into all kinds of sensitive political issues about whether this was really a crime and whether their motivation outweighed the technical violation of the law. You needed somebody who was quite sophisticated to do fair reporting of that. But he covered the trial of some hotshot Florida doctor who offed his wife. Okay. It was a mm-hmm. famous case at the time, but they didn't need Biggert for that. Mm-hmm. He was much better to deploy him, as the Times did, to go to parts of the country where nobody in New York knew anything about, such Mm -hmm. as Appalachia, and describe what he found there, which he did to great effect. I know when I was when I worked in Philadelphia, many people had this view of, you know, Philadelphia was simply part of this great eastern access axis. And to them, Scranton may as well been the planet Jupiter. And we had a handful of people, many of them from rural backgrounds, who understood things like working class people, people who had been in the military, people who lived in rural areas, people who listened to country music. And they could get out on the hustings and cover these stories better than the the urbanized reporters. Was there an element of that in Biggert? Oh, I think there was, absolutely, partly because he'd spent so much time with the troops who represented as broad a cross-section of American society as you could have, except for black people, Um, and partly because he never put on any airs himself or thought of himself as some kind of sophisticate, except in matters of food and drink. Um, And he also... um, Remember that in one of his famous stories... He described the sheriff and his fan, his acolytes in Neshoba County, Mississippi, as rednecks and peckerwoods. And through a mistake by a copy editor, that actually got into the paper at the Times. So, I mean, I think he did that deliberately to be provocative. Yeah. Probably knew that probably wouldn't survive. Yeah. But I think it enabled him to talk to people um, in restaurants and at bus stations uh, and in jails, including people who worked in the jails, who weren't the kind of people that Manhattanites normally consorted with. Yet another aspect of his unusual skill set. Your last chapter is titled, What Would Homer Do? Um. I must admit, I will confess, I felt just a tinge of envy looking at Homer Biggert's particular lifespan and when he lived. He was born, I believe it was 1907. He died in 1991, exactly at the time when the World Wide Web was being invented. Uh, the web as we know it, which did not come around until the web browser of the mid-90s, did not yet exist. The web was purely a scientific instrument. Uh, there was no such thing as web journalism. Newspapers were still large and fat and influential. They, not entirely, but by and large, set the national agenda. The editors at the New York Times, would, at the CBS Evening News, would still look at the front page 
of the New York Times every morning and see, you know, what, what parts of it they needed to replicate or try to advance the story. And so newspapers still held that position, what you call the great age of American newspapers. And it was sometime after that, the the business felt the first rumblings of trouble. The, the business to, from my perspective, really uh, began its inevitable decline with the uh, the financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. Uh, and when we saw the, the arrival of social media, advertising money is flowing to outlets like Google, uh, which are not turning around and spending those literally billions of dollars every quarter, not just yearly, but every quarter, billions of dollars every quarter on hiring reporters and reporting the news and doing what, uh, maybe I sound a little preachy here, doing what newspapers are supposed to do or news media, not just newspapers, but news media are supposed to do, which is to keep an eye on the government and to give people the information they need to govern themselves. It's all about self-government. You know, you go back to James Madison for that. And so today that the newspaper business is pretty well dead, unless you count a couple of large influential outfits like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, which have these influential, largely affluent audiences. Uh, Regional and local news is, as you know, in very serious trouble. Um, you, you, you mentioned that Homer, because Homer was Homer, would go on doing what he did even in today's age. And I got to say, I'm a little skeptical about that. The real problem is Homer Biggert was not a rich man and he needed a paycheck. Where would he have gotten it? And do you believe as I do, uh, and I, I hate to say this, that American Democracy is inarguably worse off without the news model that prevailed during Biggert's lifetime. Uh, I've become less pessimistic about this. Uh, look, I'm a relic of the typewriter age. You know, I remember I, I, I remember trying to send copy from Laos on a French keyboard telex machine. You know, I mean, I, I've been through all that. If I were back in the business, in the news business today, working for, let's say, Axios, mm-hmm. right, or Politico, I would have to learn how to use Instagram, and I'd have to tweet, which I've never done. Bigger mm-hmm. would have understood all that. I, I think the other way to look at it, though, is that the demand for news hasn't changed and will not change. The Athenians wanted to know what happened to Thermopylae, right? Abraham Lincoln left the White House and went to the telegraph office every night to read the incoming telegrams about what was happening in the Civil War battlefields. People want to know what is happening. And so they're delivering the product. Why, after all, do you need to run a big industrial operation with a thousand unionized workers in the basement of a building in the middle of a big city to deliver a product on paper that you can deliver by some other means. I think it's inevitable because it makes sense in the long run. And the vast majority of people today who read the New York Times and the Washington Post do so online. 
And I think that will, we have seen the future and it has, it is upon us, but yes, there's a, there are gaps now in local journalism. The days when your local newspaper had a reporter at city hall and one at the school board meeting, um, those days are in, are gone. If not going or going, if not gone. Right. But some other channel, some other medium will develop to get the word out because it's human nature and it's the nature of human society that people need to know what their fellow members of the society are up to and what they want and what the opportunities and risks are for them. It's going to take a while to sort itself out, but so did the transportation business after the invention of the automobile. And so I'm less pessimistic than I was, let's say, five years ago. Okay. Reminds me of a a student I had a few years ago who asked uh, Professor Cates, he says, you know, I'm kind of wondering, when is the Internet going to be finished? You know, when when are we going to really build it out? And we get to the point where we say, it's done now. This is how the Internet is going to be. And I had to tell him, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but I think the answer is probably never. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> ask your AI chatbot. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'll open a new tab and do that. Yeah. Uh, we will, but we, I guess we can leave it at that. I, that that's a good suggestion. Uh, Thomas W. Lipman, uh, your new book is called Get the Damn Story. Homer Biggert and the Great Age of American Newspapers, published by Georgetown University Press. And uh, good luck with, uh, with, with promoting the book and, of course, all, with all your future endeavors. You are an active guy, and I, uh, I admire that. I like that. Um, you, uh, uh, you've done some interesting work over the years, <laughs> and uh, that's what, we, what we'd like to see. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.